And we're back. I'm Rusty, joined by Ifo Bumaye after a less than stellar game. A very not chill game. After a bye week, you mean? Yeah, I mean, there was a bye week. We had a bye week. Nothing happened. So, uh... <laughs> so let's talk about the nothing that happened. <laughs> First off, let's get to the breaking news for today. We're recording this on Tuesday, late at night, um, on September 26th. And we found out that a lot of people are about to go to jail because of college football or college basketball. Well, maybe college football in the future. Eventually. TBD. Signs are pointing that direction. So... Um, there were four schools involved. Uh, there were a few apparel execs and also some coaches at the high school and college level that got arrested for funneling money uh, to bribe people t- for kids to sign with certain schools. Uh, to sign with certain agents and financial advisors and also to sign with certain apparel companies when they graduated. So it was a really nice circular process, basically. And the FBI was, like, using wiretapping. They were, like, undercover FBI agents, um, like, bugged rooms. This was crazy. Uh, It was a real, like, Wolf of Wall Street type stuff. Yeah. And um, people were going to jail for it. Basically, the, the breaking news today is that college college basketball, AAU basketball, travel basketball, semi-shady business. I'm shocked. At this point, it's kind of like the casino in Casablanca. Like, I'm shocked to find out that there's gambling here. I totally can't believe it. Um, and the big story related to Oregon is that – so in the FBI complaint – um, one school is not not named by name, but it basically tells you who it is because it's in the state of Kentucky. It spells out its exact enrollment down to the single person. So uh, this school is Louisville. Yeah, uh, it's it's like a public research institution with an enrollment of like twenty two thousand six hundred and forty two. So it's Louisville, and then like another one is. A Florida private college with an enrollment of sixteen thousand. It's like okay, that's the University of Miami. Like you can put you can put the two together really easily. It's all about the U. It's all um, anyway. So related to Oregon, for those of you who don't just come to Addicted to Quack for football season and actually stay year round, um, you might remember a five star recruit, Brian Bowen, who had Oregon, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was either in top two or top three. And he was one of the last, he was the last five-star recruit to commit in this last recruiting recruiting cycle. Um, And he had Oregon as top two or top three. The other schools were other big name schools that you would think of. It was either, you know, like Kentucky, Kansas, Arizona, somewhere around there. And all of a sudden, within the last week of his recruitment, there's this rumbling 
about Louisville. And then he decides to go to Louisville. Well, it turns out, according to the FBI, that he may or may not allegedly have received uh, about $100,000 to make that decision. I think when the FBI writes about it, it's not allegedly anymore. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not either. But You're I studied feel... a lawyer, but, you know, whatever. Whatever. Uh, Same thing. What's the difference? <laughs> so that's the Oregon tie. Uh, basically, there are some people that are screwed right now, and I hope that they have really good lawyers and they flip on everybody because this is going to turn into some chaos right now. Yeah. They have um, a uh, they have an open hotline for for people to leave tips. So I'm waiting until I hear a voicemail with you being like, so I heard the Huskies are funneling money to these players. Uh, hey, hey, yes, um, I have it on good authority that uh, Chris Peterson, head coach of the Husky football team, uh, is paying for the basketball team recruits. Uh, uh, also, purple and gold look stupid together. Thank you, bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> uh, no fan here. Who, who is that? Uh, no fan here. Uh, Florida's got some really shady practices. Okay. So uh, that's going to turn out great. And I cannot wait for SB Nation or Deadspin or someone to file a Freedom of Information Act to figure out the phone numbers of every single person that calls that tip line. Can they do that? I don't know, but I hope that they can. Someone's going to try. Because basically what this is going to turn into, this is going to turn into high-level boosters at every school flipping on their friends. And it's going to be great. I can't wait, Bob. I saw a tweet that really made me laugh. And it was like, long time offender, first time caller. (laughs) Long time briber. Um, On the plus side, and I don't necessarily know if there is any plus side to this. But on the plus side, if you're a high school athlete... Get your money, man. Like, the, what this this is just another data point in the sample that says that blue chip student athlete recruits are worth a ton of money to whichever school that they end up going to. Um, I, you had sent me a tweet earlier today. I think forget exactly who it was um, who had talked to one of the agents listed in the complaint. Who basically said, "Yeah, we we can potentially make mon- millions off one kid." Yeah. So at that point, if you're an agent, why wouldn't you do this? It's a numbers game at this point. You know, if you give a hundred thousand dollars to ten kids a year and one of them lands, then you make millions. Then you're fine. Uh, where they really screwed up in terms of the FBI complaint and why this was actually illegal other than just the bribing sort of situation is what they're basically doing is they're basically defrauding the federal government of financial aid because they're giving these payments to the high school athlete and their family and that impacts 
how much income they should say that they make for financial aid documents so that the government is basically giving them financial aid that they should not get according to the government. So that's really why this all came about. But it should be something interesting to follow as uh, as it progresses over the next, I'm sure, will be a real quick investigation, as all things are. Right, because North Carolina is getting wrapped up any moment now. As our big, big friend Cam Newton would say, it's an ongoing investigation. <laughs> I remember Charles Barkley made a joke, and he was like, so if Auburn paid $250,000 for Cam Newton... Is that not the best return on investment in the history of sports? They're smart as hell. They're smart as hell. Yeah. I think, although I think it is illegal for agents to be paying high school athletes. You're probably right. I know, I know high school baseball players can have agents, though. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know the the specifics of it but that as far as I know in the early reports that's kind of where where they really got tripped up it's like Al Capone going down for tax evasion you know it's 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 what they can't get it's a semantic but it's what they can get and I look forward to Mark Emmert uh, taking real strong stance on this go NCAA in so, happy news, you want to well, talk about the Arizona State game? Not yet. So <laughs> the, the interesting thing is, uh, is that you know, like the whole like SB Nation did a, like a big essay a couple of years ago on the Bagman for college football, and that was like this yeah, huge revelation. But really, it was just giving us more insight into stuff that we already knew was going on, and it just kind of laid how everything was working. And I know a lot of college football writers, I think Bruce Feldman especially, who wrote, who's written, who wrote a book on high school recruiting um, from the uh, standpoint of Ed Orgeron when he was at Ole Miss. And he was like, not, it's not really like this everywhere. It's really pretty much like some isolated incidents. It's, it does happen a fair amount, but not as much as people think. And, you know, as college sports fans, we pretty much just, this is kind of just like assumed to happen. Like we see some players commit to other schools and then like on their Instagram or Snapchat, they have like all of these TVs all of a sudden. A few people will commit to Alabama and then next day they have like a charger that's fully loaded and has like their name on the side of it. They just um, have rich grandparents. Yeah, on, exactly. Exactly. So, and I mean... It's kind of it's kind of widely accepted as kind of like business as usual in college sports, um, and now it kind of comes around and it's like, wait, the FBI is saying this is really illegal, and it's just one of those things where it's uh, socialized to just think that it's okay and that ha- not okay, but it's like acceptable it's enough to be where nobody does a strong stand against it, and it's also interesting too that like. The FBI came in and did what, like, the NCAA wasn't able to do. And I think it really just shows how weak the NCAA is at enforcing anything and just how, like, pretty much how terrible it is as an oversight group with the way that it mishandled, like, USC 
and um, Miami, and now North Carolina, who I joked earlier, that's like going on four years of investigating the penalties of like people showing up to an African-American histories class. So I, I have a couple points on that. Um, one, I completely agree that the NCAA as an organization, as an enforcement organization, is completely overmatched. There is no possible way that the NCAA as it's currently set up can be an effective enforcement organization to cover hundreds of schools across D1, FBS, FCS, D2, D3. Um, Especially considering that in the realm of athletics, you always want to win and what the NCAA relies on principally to take care of enforcement is internal compliance organizations. So a drink for when you're fancy. T- God damn. <laughs> um, so for everybody who complains about the sound, I am now using a different computer. So I'm not using <laughs> the keyboard that makes all the thudding noises or the mouse that is apparently very loud because my microphone picks up literally everything. I was eating a chip before we started recording to see if that picked up from six feet away from the microphone and apparently was just blowing out speakers. I lost my train of thought. So, so that was that, that was my point number one. My point number two is I agree with um, who you were saying, Bruce Feldman, had, had said, hey, this, this isn't really as widespread as people necessarily think mm-hmm. it is. I agree with a caveat. I think it is extremely widespread at the highest levels of competition in the revenue sports. Mm-hmm. Where I do not think it is widespread is lower level, even lower level power five, but like group of five schools, that type of stuff, for a couple reasons. One, they just don't have resources. Um, or the boosters, yeah. Because it's I mean, largely driven by like alumni or boosters who just have tons of money, and they're like, I can either donate to the school or I can just like donate to players to come to the school. Exactly. So that's that's reason why number one is just the lack of resources at that level. Number two is at some point, if you're not going after national championships and your fourth, fifth, five-star guy on a basketball team, there are plenty of three-stars out there who can do just fine. So it's the same concept as, like, in a fantasy football draft, everybody's drafted running backs first because they're scarce, right? Yeah. You know, quarterbacks may give you more points, but the value and the opportunity cost of drafting a quarterback first versus a running back is huge. So, I mean, this broke this morning, and I read about it on D1 Ticker, which I'm subscribed to, which I definitely recommend. If you are interested in the business of college athletics, D1 Ticker is the place to go. Um, So I saw it on D1 Ticker, and there was part of me that was like, wow, this is insane. And there was part of me, who I work at not a national championship contending school. Not with that attitude. There was part of me that was like, boy, 
I think we're fine. I think we're okay. So um, that's my thought on that. It'll it'll be interesting to see how this shapes up. There's a lot of twists and turns that it could take. Okay, so my follow-up question to you is... Um, if... So with Dana Altman just crushing recruiting, do you think that there's any funny business going on there? Um... No, and the reason why is because if you have followed the trends of Oregon basketball recruiting, it's not like there was all of a sudden overnight some huge jump. Um, Now, certainly recently we've seen one or two five stars be interested and take visits, which is unusual in the history of Oregon basketball. Um but if you charted a path from when Dana Altman was first hired to where we are now, it's been a steady incline. And if you take a program to a Final Four, that's going to get people's attention. And I would note that the people who took us to that Final Four, Jordan Bell, Dylan Brooks, Tyler Dorsey is an exception because Tyler Dorsey was rated very highly, but these are all guys that were overlooked coming out of the high school ranks. So I certainly hope, and I would like to think that based on our recruiting trends over the last, I don't know, however many years Coach Allman has been with the program, I don't necessarily see a huge jump that came out of nowhere we haven't flipped anybody at the last second out of nowhere where we were not even in the picture and then all of a sudden somebody's committing to us um so i i struggle to make assumptions and i never want to say never but i feel confident in the program that we have right now okay next question with the surge, and I, and I, with that being said, I have no inside knowledge of what's going on. I'm just kind of looking at the program. From that. Yeah. Um. And it's weird too, because with the football team, for sure, I know the recruiting efforts of the previous coaching staff are widely criticized. Um, and this staff has just a completely different approach to it. But the jump is also pretty substantial. But kind of to make your point, too, there's no last-minute flips. Everything is happening pretty much like a year out from signing day. But part of me thinks, though, that, like, just like in, like, I think it was 96, Phil Knight was like, what do we have to do to get to a national championship game? What do we have to do to be a national power? I think maybe, like, the last year. I think it's possible I see a reality where there were a few people last year who were like, what's it going to take to get to a national championship? Just better players. And maybe a couple of them took it on themselves to uh, to do it. I don't think it's likely, but I do see a reality where that takes place. Yeah, I mean, 
anytime you're dealing in high level athletics where amateurism comes into play and there is far greater demand for blue chip recruits than there is supply there's always that possibility um if that was to occur i can all but guarantee that it would not be under the direction of the top boosters at oregon mm-hmm. uh, oh or, it's definitely not the top or, guys with that being said really any school i think the top boosters especially people in the limelight like Uncle Phil or like T. Boone Pickens at Oklahoma State, people that are known for being boosters are, in my opinion, are smart enough that they're not going to be in this business. It's going to be the guys who are like new money and have a little bit of cash to throw around and they're like, you know what, screw it. I want to win a natty. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And just the they take the short-term view, which in reality, now we can argue all you want about whether athletes should get paid or compensated for their labor while they're in school. Um, But the reality is the situation right now is it's not allowed. And Mm -hmm. so donors that do this are just putting their institution in risk of long-term penalties because in a situation like this that gets on the headlines of the New York Times, that gets on SB Nation, because the NCAA is so overmatched in their um, enforcement efforts, stuff like this, stuff like North Carolina, stuff like USC, stuff like Penn State, the things that get people attention, they're gonna focus their investigation on that and they're gonna come down hard in an effort to say, listen, I know we can't necessarily keep an eye on all y'all, hundreds of schools, but if you do something wrong and you get in the spotlight, this is what's gonna happen. So it's someone that would do this in the current framework of the NCAA is very short-sighted in my opinion. Yeah. Um, And one of the things too that the FBI did is like, uh, they basically said that they only submitted as much information as they needed to in order to get like these arrests. Um, and they said that they're very confident that they have enough evidence to prove everything they're charging. And basically they hinted that there's a lot more that they already have and it's not just limited to the programs that they have already identified, the people in the programs. Because you had like Adidas execs too, I know they're looking into a couple of the previous companies that some of those execs worked at that also really pretty much put a lot of their eggs in the basketball basket. I mean, basically what this we, – we were joking about the tip line, tip line earlier. Basically what this tip line is is the FBI saying if you are a booster that is giving money to student-athletes or funneling – to coaches or advisors or whatever, you probably want to go ahead and call this tip line because we might have something on you. And it's probably going to be better for you if you call in than if we happen to show up on your door one day. Yeah. You're going to, yeah. The, I think one of them actually said, like, you better call us before we end up calling you. Do not mess with the government, man. Don't do it. 
You're not going to have a good time. Don't do it. Zero good times. That's all I got to say about that. All right, so let's move to a a more positive, brighter subject. Uh, Arizona State. So I am in a much better place than I was on Saturday night. Our group text got pretty heated at points. Well, I will also say uh, one of us, I won't say who, was in Vegas watching the game, uh, which tends to bring out the um, chutzpah in people. So, yeah, uh, this game was, you know, if I was an outside observer, I would say that it might have been pretty fun to watch, Um, albeit with a lot of stopping and starting because we had 14 penalties. Oh, my God. It's it's just like a Vietnam flashback right now. It's it's awful. Um, but with that being said, I am in a much better place than I was Saturday night because what I have kept repeating to myself as a sort of mantra is before this season, we hoped that we would be a seven or eight win team. Yeah. And up to this point, we have certainly looked like a seven and eight win team and more even like in our game against Wyoming in the first half against Nebraska, we have looked every bit the Oregon that we remembered in the past, not for whole games, but for flashes. And even despite all the penalties, despite the result I saw a lot out of the team that I liked in this past game. Couple shout outs just to begin with. Jalen Jelks played out of his mind in the oh second. Oh my god. For a guy that we both kind of pegged as a the breakout uh, guy. Could be a breakout guy on the D-line. He announced his return to Arizona with authority. Second, again on the defensive line. Jordan Scott was tossing Arizona State center virtually every play. Their first uh, touchdown, Arizona State's first touchdown, where the quarterback kind of ran that little, not play action, but um, basically faked a handoff and kind of ran a naked boot on the left side of the the line. Jordan Scott threw the center sideways. I mean, this kid is going to be special. Either that or Arizona State Center is very bad, and I don't necessarily think that's the case. So I I thought that the line played very well at causing havoc. I mean, we had 13 tackles for loss in this game, which is incredible. crazy. Um, Despite the fact that Arizona State ended up with, let's see... 489 yards of total offense and 347 passing yards. I I don't think our secondary played terrible. There were some catches that Arizona State was making, and especially their number one rideout, Nakeem Harry. He, who, he's just so good. At, the, at some point, you just have to tip your hat and say, dude, I don't know what else we could have done because he was incredible. Um 
I feel bad for Thomas Graham Jr. because he was kind of getting picked on. Lenore was kind of getting picked on. But at the same time, they're freshmen. They've got to go through the flames. It's an away game. It's the first Pac-12 uh, conference game. They're, they're going to learn. So I feel much better about this game now than I did on Saturday night. What are your thoughts? Um, I think Arizona State did a really good job of attacking uh, the weaknesses that we had talked about after the Nebraska and Wyoming games. Um, the offensive line... So, first off, I think that the defense was very looked very unprepared for a lot of the things that Arizona State was throwing at them. Um, I thought the offense was not well prepared for pretty much the entire game. Because um, to me, there's really... Arizona State's defense is known for one thing, and that's being really aggressive, running man-to-man blitz with no help over the top. And, Covers it. Right. So there should be really no reason why there should not be route concepts built in where Herbert can get the pass off within two seconds. There should really be no no reason why there aren't slants, why there aren't some um, like hook, flat options. Um, so Because there were times where they were blitzing tons of people. And I know Cristobal said they did a good job of picking everybody up, but uh, and because the because they were outnumbered, so someone was going to get through. But on the flip side of that is, is, it, is if defenses, if the offense is outnumbered blocking, that means that they have an advantage passing because it's going to be one-on-one coverage somewhere. And if we don't have receivers that can get separation, then that's a problem. Um, and if we don't have uh, even pass plays in place, where Herbert can get the ball out quickly so he's not just sitting there with someone coming in at him, um, then that just shows a lack of preparedness. Um, that, so, that was my biggest takeaway, is at times they just looked really unprepared for like the most obvious situation that Arizona State was going to throw at them. Special teams has really been ineffective and detrimental pretty much every game except for the first play of the season. Yeah, so, I mean, right now, our punter is averaging 38 yards per punt, which is not great. Right, but it's even even more than that is we rarely get returns on punts. We rarely get any quality returns on kickoff. We muff a punt at least once a game. Um, and I don't feel like our coverage on punts has been great. Kickoff coverage has been phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Punt coverage makes me nervous. Um, so, I mean, I think a lot of the problems that we saw were really just indicative of a team that wasn't prepared for what Arizona State was going to throw at them offensively. And the offense really let the defense hang out to dry in a lot of scenarios. Like going one of eleven on third down and zero for two on fourth down is just terrible. 
Like, you cannot win a game that way. And I think this game really was a scenario. I rarely think this happens. I think there's only a few games where I will honestly say that I think one team lost the game more than the other team won it. But Oregon played so uncharacteristically bad across all three phases, I have to imagine that this is, like, an anomaly, in a sense, with just how bad they played. And the only other time I would really say off the top of my head that that this happened for another Oregon game was the 2014 Pac-12 championship game against Arizona, where Arizona just looked just absolutely terrible. More... They looked worse than Oregon looked good, and that's an example where Arizona just did not come to play. So my biggest question out of that is, with that being said, that you, that your biggest takeaway is that they they didn't look prepared. Yeah. Do you think, obviously it's really early to make judgments like this, but do you think that No, is, fire the coaching staff. We Do you think that's like some systematic problem? Because I know in, in previous iterations of this podcast, like the the Wyoming, after the recap of the Wyoming game, and uh, when we talked about the Nebraska game as well, um, there were some issues brought up with play calling and getting too conservative and that type of thing. Um, do you think that? not being ready to play, not being prepared is a like a one-time blip as just a coaching staff and a team that is learning how to win together, learning how to play together? Or did did you see when you rewatch the game any sort of like systematic issues that might come up again and again and again? I don't think it's like the lack of preparedness is due to like incompetence or like ineptitude for anybody um I think that the coaches are really doing their best trying to work around some of the some of the weaknesses that the team has and this is not me just working on revisionist history saying everything's bad because these are things I brought up after the Nebraska and Wyoming uh game last week but basically the offensive line is switching Entirely how they block, going from zone blocking to downhill, like really targeting people, which is where against Nebraska, especially Wyoming to a lesser extent, we saw linebackers like shooting gaps where basically there, there should have been a mesh block in place where like the center and guard are going to take one of the linemen. One of them then is going to go and move on to the linebacker. But basically we'd see that they'd start the mesh block and the linebacker would shoot past them before one of the linemen was able to tail off and pick him up. Um, so that's a constant. We've also seen a constant where linemen are pulling to the play side from the backside, whether it's like a guard or tackle, and they're just flat out missing the guy coming around the edge that they should be blocking. And it's that, it's that kind of differences from a schematic perspective that's causing a lot of problems in the negative plays. Um, and then... This is also something I brought up last week. Like Herbert's a really good quarterback. What he struggles with is dealing with pressure. Um, like we saw later in the game, that like a lot of his passes were just really far off. Um, like he was overshooting guys by like five yards. Um, 
And that was after an accumulation of like hits and pressures and everything. And I think some of the the play calling um, is in a way to kind of protect Herbert in a sense, because um, basically when you're just running it, you take a lot of pressure off of him. I think he needs to get more active running the football. I'm sure they have it look like it's a read option, but really he's just designed to hand it off with how often defensive ends have just crashed and he still ends up handing it off. Um, But we knew Taggart was kind of a stubborn play caller when he came over. I think that's one of the one knocks that I had against him. And... I really think like in the second half of Nebraska and Wyoming, probably relying too much on the running game to like carry the work during that time is a way to take a lot of the pressure off of Herbert. Because we've seen him like in practices, people are saying like like Rob Mosley says like he completed like twenty four of twenty nine passes for like an unofficial two hundred and fifty yards and five touchdowns. Or um, like in a lot of games like in the in Nebraska, like he threw some awesome passes, but there's he can go for stretches of really below average play. He also has the really high highs of just looking amazing passing the ball, but then he also definitely has his slumps, and I think a lot of the play calling is again trying to mask that weakness with an over reliance on the running game where we still see some of the offensive linemen struggle with their assignments. So you're saying that Justin Herbert is J.R. Smith? Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. And now all I want to see is Justin Herbert fully tatted all over his upper body. Yeah. And I mean, that's not to say that like I think this is a permanent thing. Um, and this is the fourth game that the coaches have coached together. This is the fifth game before including the spring game with the offensive line completely switching gears. I think this is something that's going to get better as the season goes on. Um, How much better, I'm not sure. But a lot of it just comes down to just like knowing your assignment and getting experience going against different types of defenses. So So with that being said, I I have a couple couple positives that – there's definitely positives. Those are just the negatives yeah. that we started no, with. No, I, and I get that. I, I have a couple positives that I would like to also bring up about, uh, specifically about the coaching staff because, um, you know, it's easy after the fact to say, oh, well, the play calling was terrible or, yeah. um, you know, it's obvious that Arizona State is going to blitz, so why are we running post routes? We should be running slants or a little hook and out. Um, you know, it's it's easy after the fact to say that. Right. And as someone who does not get paid to coach football, I'm going to go ahead and leave those decisions to Coach Tagger and his staff. Um, but what was obvious as the game went on, and I, I think is a very positive sign that we have not always seen in the past, is the amount of adjustments that were made, both offensively and defensively, yep. I thought were very good. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, it's easy to remember the end of the game where we were basically just throwing the ball all around and where 
Jalen Jelks was wreaking havoc in the backfield. But for at least the first quarter, maybe even a little bit more than that, Arizona State could basically do whatever it wanted up the middle. Yep. They were running the ball, and they would run three and a half to four yards before they were even contacted. Um, a lot of that was targeting Kalana Pelu, who had to play more reps with A.J. Hoskins out, um, who went out relatively early. Um, a lot of that was targeting Troy Dye, who early in the game looked as tentative as we've ever seen Troy Dye look. Yeah. And in my opinion, that's part of that is because they were running all night where his strength is going and seeking out contact and just creating havoc. Well, if, if somebody's coming right at you and you're playing off your heels, you're, you're going to be in a poor position. But as we saw towards the end of the game after halftime, by the end of the game, we were not giving up middle runs anymore. There were a lot of three and outs, yeah. Jordan Scott had stepped up. Falio stepped up. Pagano stepped up. That middle of the defense and the linebackers, Troy Dye played very well in the second half. Apelu was making tackles flying around. Um, that was a big adjustment that I could see right off the bat. Offensively, um, even though we did tend to rely a bit too much, in my opinion, on on post routes and like trying to find that deep play that would burn Arizona State in one play rather yeah. than going with quick outs, you saw a little bit more of that as the game went on. And then you also saw the coaching staff use Justin Herbert in the run game, which really opened up our drives in the second half. Yeah. So with all that being said, losing sucks. I mean, I, I was not happy on Saturday night. It's uh, losing sucks. Yeah. But I, I think overall as a program – I think we're in a good spot, at least according to the press conferences that, that Coach Taggart had on Monday. The team looks like it's rebounded very well in terms of practice, in terms of bringing the juice and, and having energy in practice. So hopefully that carries over into the Cal game. Um, really what I want to see in this upcoming Cal game is I want to see the sideline be into the game the entire time. Because after last year, after the Nebraska loss, the team just crumbled. We lost against Colorado, and then it was downhill from there. So, yeah, it's a bump in the road. Yeah, losing sucks. But if we come out against a beatable Cal team, and everyone is into the game, and the energy is back, then I think we'll be all right. Yeah, and it's a situation where you can't let Arizona State beat you twice. Basically, and uh, yeah, I really want to echo the positives of as unprepared as the offense looked, especially in the first half. There were changes that were made in the second half that were really effective. I don't think it was enough, and there were just some just downsides that couldn't be overcome just from how like the game plan was structured during the week. But the defensive adjustments made were so solid, and it was it was things that were. It looked like they were plans, like a plan B and C. Like, if we start seeing them do this, then we're going to respond this way. Because it began to be, uh, like, 
there's a lot of things that I know the defense did in the past where if something happened and they had prepped for it, they could immediately switch into a different coverage. So, like, if someone motioned out a certain way, um, like, if they always had the tight end inside and then motion to the outside, everyone would automatically adjust to a certain coverage. Um, and, like, uh, I think the commentators even pointed out, was, like, whenever they faked the jet sweep or whenever they had somebody came come across, basically it was an automatic hot call for the uh, defensive back that was play side to just blitz and it was like a really easy counter um, to basically what Arizona State was doing and it was something that was really effective and so I think a lot of credit has to go to the defensive staff to having their guys prepared with like a plan B and C it definitely looks like there were scripted responses to different looks they obviously struggled with some of those initial reads basically with some of those initial plays and that's where, you know, we just basically spotted them 21 pretty easy points just by having some flaws going into it. So, but then maybe Arizona State did something differently that the coaching staff wasn't anticipating. So, who knows? So, let's look forward to Cal. What uh, What do you think? What, what are you looking forward to? Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing Oregon play against a team that has a rough first half and an awesome second half. Um, That didn't happen against USC last year, but USC is kind of its own team because even against like UNC, Weaver State, Ole Miss, Cal really struggled in the first half but then absolutely dominated defensively in the second half. Um, Like Ole Miss... Um, had their two scores in the first half, didn't score in the second half. Weber State scored all their points in the first half, didn't score in the second half. Um, North Carolina scored most of their points in the first half um, and under half of their points in the second half. So USC is the counterexample to where they just poured it on at the end. But... Even then, Cal held them scoreless in the third. It was really USC probably outlasting depth and at some point just talent taking over later in the game that got them the win. But Cal was much better than I thought they would be this year. Significantly better. I thought they would win one, two games max. And right now they're at three. So the spread opened up as Oregon minus 13.5 which to me is way too high. That is way too high. Yeah, right now, if you're just if you're looking at S and S and P plus, the projected margin margin is Oregon minus twelve point three. That is way too uh, high. Even then, I that does take into account preseason polls, which um, look at Cal and preseason. Everybody was like. You know, Cal yeah, is going to be garbage yeah. right down there in the bottom three in the Pac-12. So I, I do think that 12, and certainly the 13 that is currently at in Vegas is is too high. Um, what I am looking forward to in this game, and what we did not see in the Arizona State game that we had seen in the previous three games from Oregon, was turnovers. Um, Yes. In the Arizona State game, the only turnover that we 
got from Arizona State was off a muff punt, which we turned into quick seven points. Yeah. Um, and thus far on the year, while Cal has been much improved defensively, their offense has given the ball away a lot. And it hasn't been with their backs. It's been with their quarterback. So their quarterback, up to this point, has thrown six touchdowns, eight interceptions already on the year. He's been sacked eight times. He's fumbled seven times, three of which have been recovered by the opposing team. And all that says to me through four games is that if our defensive line can get a push and if our secondary can play like they did in the first three games where they were breaking up passes and turning the ball over, then we're going to be in a very good spot. Um, that's, what, that's what I'm excited to see on the defensive side of the ball. On the offensive side of the ball, Cal has been much improved compared to what they what we expected them to be. But at the same time, they're still rebuilding. Defensively, right now, in efficiency, they're ranked 105. Defensive so, efficiency? Yeah. In, that seems in, really, really low. Yeah, you know, and, and part of that is, part of the reason why their defense has been so good is they're a very explosive defense. They turn the ball over. I mean, Explosive-wise, they're ranked 36th. Okay. So, so they get huge negative plays that kill drives, basically. Exactly. So, again, this is, albeit they're not going to play cover zero and blitz the hell out of us. Yeah. But this is similar to the way that Arizona State plays, where they're going to sell out, they're going to try and turn the ball over, and they hope that they can put their offense in a good position from there. Where if we can play mistake-free football offensively, we're going to be in a good spot. So offensively, I'm looking to see how the offensive line and Justin Herbert responds to pressure. And I'm looking to see how, especially in the run game, how we can use motion to get Royce and Tony Brooks-James and Taj Griffin and our playmakers the ball in an area where they can do damage, where they're not just running into a straight power run where the defense knows it's coming. I was surprised we didn't see more jet sweeps from Taj Griffin after the one worked out so well. Yeah, you know, and, and with Taj, it may be something where maybe he's still kind of coming back from injury. I would think after a game and a half-ish, he'd kind of be back. Um, but but it may be something where they're trying to ease him in. Um, boy, I was going to say something else, and now I just completely lost it. It's been a long day. It's been a long day. But it, anyway, you know, I, I'm excited to see the team get back to Autzen. That That's another thing that Coach Taggart mentioned in his press conference about the Arizona State game um, is that he did not um, – and the coaching staff did not get the team ready to play right out of the bat. They, he said that they didn't have you know the normal juice that they had. Yeah. And I think back to Autzen will help that a lot, especially with a young team that might need that extra little you know push that they don't get when they're an away team. 
And that's part of just growing up. They're they're a young team. They're going to have to grow up and figure out how to bring it every day. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely don't think it's a scenario where, like, Arizona exposed Oregon in a way that every team is going to be able to. I think Arizona's style of play and their strategy basically worked out really well for them. I don't think this is a scenario where, you know, the season's done for it, like, They've been found out. There's no way to work around it. I definitely don't think that's the case. And uh, with that being said, uh, bringing it to back to what, what I said at the beginning, talking about this Arizona State game, if our expectation before the season was hoping for seven or eight wins, right now, based on Bill C's projections, the chances that we go six and six at least – are 95 percent yeah the chances that we win seven or eight wins is like and i'm doing this off the top of my head so it's rough but it's about like 65 ish percent so it's more likely than not still pretty close to the middle but it's more likely than not i mean all things considered yes losing sucks but i think we're in a pretty good spot yeah now now is the point where we need to see not only how this team responds, but like how the coaching staff gets the team to respond. Because yeah. a, a freshman-laden team is not just going to respond by itself, unless there are some incredible leaders that on the freshman squad. Uh, a team is not going to respond by itself. It's going to have to be led by this coaching staff. And for all the great talk about how good our recruiting has been and you know we're so excited about uh, all these star-studded coaches in now's the time that they prove it you know you come off a loss let's bounce back we still have a ton of games to go where this could be a season that people look back on i you know i remember some of some of the favorite seasons of mine as a duck fan I loved going to the national championship. I love going to the Rose Bowl. I love being able to see those teams. But some of the favorite memories are the early Duck teams that kind of came out of nowhere that yeah. were really building towards something great. And I feel like we have that momentum again where it's like, okay, we're, we're building something. As yeah. long as we continue that momentum overall, then I think we're in a good spot. Yeah, like remember the uh, like to the two thousand nine season with Chip Kelly, we didn't look good until week four. We lost we lost to Boise State in just a terrible game. Falcon Punch. Yeah, just I remember watching that game, just being like, "What am What are we doing?" Um, and then we had a lackluster win over Purdue. But a win's a win. Purdue was really bad then. Um, and then we beat Utah with a lot of special teams and defensive plays. We didn't have a passing touchdown in the first three weeks. Um, and then we just exploded against Cal 42-3 when Cal was a top 10 team at the time. So, I mean, it's week four still. We're only a third of the way through the season. So, and I think too, in the Pac-12, no one's great. 
Washington and USC are both really, really good. I wouldn't say they're great teams right now, based on what we've seen so far. Everybody yeah, I, has everybody has shown weaknesses in some aspect of their of their games. There's no Bama's. There's no Clemson's. Uh, there's or anything in our in our conference. I would agree. I think that right now, I I think that Washington is the favorite. As much as that pains me to say, you know, everybody is going to point to the the first game against Rutgers. Um, but since then, even though that they have played not good competition they've taken care of business in a big way yeah. uh, USC if I was a Trojan fan I would be more concerned about USC because their lackluster play against Cal and then pulled it out late lackluster play against Texas and then pulled it out late so you know this is kind of turning into a trend for USC and by week four in college football you kind of are getting a sense of what you are as a team. For Oregon, what we are as a team right now is a young team that's growing, an offensive line that's learning to play a new system, a quarterback that, for all of his amazing arm talent, still needs to grow as a player. Yeah. And one of the best running back trios in the country. That I mean, that's, that's what we are. Which is a pretty uh, good place to be. Which, all things considered, considering we're four games in after firing the previous staff, I think we're in a much better spot than just about any other team that fires a coaching staff could be. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll see. I, I'm excited about this game. I really want to see how the team responds. I, I think it's going to be in a positive way. I think coming back to Auton, especially – now that school has started and now that the students are there to give that extra juice, uh, I think that that'll help. Um, yeah, students sold out. Students picked up all their tickets, and they're, this school is making, or the athletic department, since it's separate from the school, is making more tickets available at $15 a piece. Good. So, Let's get the whole, whole section, Swag Serpent. Yeah. The marching band's doing it now. Oh, and Kenyon Barner got signed to the Eagles. That's cool. Yeah. Go Ducks. Go Ducks. Fill in for Darren Sproles. Hmm. So basically he's the next Darren Sproles. So add him to your waiver wire. Yeah. For If you're looking for three plays a game. So you know what's crazy is that Josh Huff has basically made a career off of special teams in the NFL. Hey, man. Like. Keep cashing them checks. There are so many people in the NFL that just do dirty work, and they get paid. Just find your niche. That's yeah. what Mike Tolbert did. He found his niche. Yeah. Um, and what's and I think the uh, the big takeaway too. I mean, what I said before, if for Arizona State was they need to pressure Herbert. They need to make him feel uncomfortable. They need to stretch the field. Um, and they really just got to force a lot of negative plays. And that's what they did. And for Cal, again, on offense, they're going to have to be much more careful with the football than they've been in the last few weeks. Um, and they need to create... 
negative plays because just our offense has just not been doing that well. Um, the success rate is really high, higher than it's been in years. A lot of that, I think, is due to the blocking. Um, I don't think we've seen as many explosive plays. Uh, but Cal just being really aggressive on the run. In a way, I would basically... I would basically do what Stanford did against Oregon in 2000, like 2009, 2010, 2011, and basically dare Darren Thomas to win the game himself. I would basically dare Justin Herbert to win the game. I would say, you're going to have to keep it every single read. You're going to have to be man coverage every single play, and we're just going to blitz you all the time. You're going to constantly be uncomfortable. You're going to have to constantly be doing all the work. That's what I'm I would excited. say. I'm excited. After after this discussion, I can't wait. It's going to be great. Oh, I'm really excited. I mean, it's it's fun to like watch the team and everything. I think they're going to get better from last week. Um, you know, maybe it was good for like the long term health of the season to have a bad game to really expose some of the really serious flaws that were on the team. That's so, what Alabama does every time they win the national natty. Yep. If, if Alabama goes undefeated in the regular season, they're not winning the national championship. If they lose once, they're winning. Yep. So basically what we're saying is we're winning the natty this year. Yes. That that the is the helmet, takeaway. The winged helmets are back. We got our swagger. We got our loss out of the way. Now let's bust off 12 of them in the row. Yeah. Washington's coming up. Let's get ready. I'm fired up. You can well, tell my uh, monotone voice right now. For what was supposed to be a short pod, I think we've gone... An hour up. and two minutes. So if you're still listening to us, I don't know why you're still here. You're the best. If you're still listening, you're our favorites. So, okay. All right. That'll do it for uh, Ifo Bumae and myself. Uh, We'll be back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel uh, to break down the cow game. And then after that, Washington State is making a trip to Autzen Stadium. We could have two night games Two more night games in a row, which would make three. So if we win on Saturday, we get to play Cal. Or no, we get to play Washington State at 5. If we lose, we have to play at 7.30 again. So basically, just just win. Please. I don't. I think we 5, 5 p.m. We... is still Pac-12 after dark still applies, but not to the same degree as it does at 7 p.m. We do not want Pac-12 after dark Cougars. No. That's like the Animorphs. <laughs> that's like, that's like, uh, like, they go super cyan on the 7 p.m. kickoffs. That's really what happens. They go super cyan. That's All a right. good note. Yep. All right, so we'll talk to you guys next week. Uh, go Ducks. Let's hope for a great game this weekend.